Hello and welcome to the Deep State Consciousness Podcast. Today I'm joined by Ronnie Arison. Ronnie is a psychotherapist specializing in work with addictions and she's also the founder of the SWAN Project, a charity set up to work with people with addictions in Bristol and the author of the book Addictions, This Being Human. Ronnie, good morning. Thank you for being here. Morning. So a lot of stuff to get into, but I'd love to hear how you became a psychotherapist to start us off. Right. I think it was almost by accident. Um, I had a teaching job and I was head of a unit for children with learning difficulties. And um, when I became pregnant with my fourth, fourth child, I thought, oh, I'll just do a counselling course. Um, well, I had time off work and I really took to it. And then I did an MA in psychodynamic counselling. And then um, my, we were allowed to have one, I, well, I had a placement in a doctor's surgery and I was allowed to have one long-term client. And it just happened to be somebody with an addiction. And I got really hooked into that. So it happened in that way. And then um, I thought, I need to know more about this because I was just uh, working from what I knew from my counselling training rather than any sort of thing. And so I um, offered myself as a volunteer in a drug and alcohol agency. And they said to me, would you like to become a supervisor? I think they were quite impressed that somebody with an MA was going to volunteer for them. So the agreement was that they would pay for me to do the um, supervision training and then I would work for them for two years with uh, without being paid as a supervisor so um, I thought yes that would be great because the difficulty with doing any sort of training is actually getting people to uh, practice on so um, and then it was through doing that training that I found out found out about um, the Sherwood Psychotherapy Training Institute because that's where I did my supervision training. And they were saying, oh, why don't you do a psychotherapy training? And so it sort of happened by accident, by a, a series of happy, happy accidents. So that's how I became a psychotherapist. Okay. Now, I was going to take this interview in the direction of asking you about your approach to working of addiction, how maybe spirituality has influenced that. But when I picked up your book again the other day, I was struck by the story you start off with, the one that actually prompted you to get going and put pen to paper, uh, where you talk about a lady who the police refused to investigate uh, when she had her, she was mugged, I think, and the police refused to investigate because she found she had, they, they found she had addiction issues and then they just walked off. And it struck me that I'd never really thought about why your book was called This Being Human. I know it's the start of a poem by Rumi, but mm. central to the book is not just this is the methodology to work with addiction issues. There's a sense that how society dehumanizes the addict yeah. and how the therapeutic process then is a process of rehumanization. Could you speak yeah. to that? Maybe that, that story and, um, and that wider approach? Yes. Well, the reason why, first of all, why we set up the SWAN project was because, um, when I was working at the drug and alcohol agency, 
what happened was the government stopped all funding for anybody with an alcohol addiction and all the money went instead to people with drug addictions. So, and, and I think the reasoning was partly because of AA, you know, well, so, you know, there's AA, they, you know, and there's lots of help for them, but, but not so much for drug addicts. And what a girlfriend and I noticed, another girlfriend that was working there, was that the um, alcohol um, addicts were getting sidelined. All the, all the treatment was geared for people with, with drug problems. And the language and everything changed. And actually the two, although it sounds like they'd have a lot in common, actually they don't in the way that the language is different and the age, there's usually quite an age gap. And so we, we were both a bit horrified and so we set up the SWAN project. But realizing how sidelined people were, um, especially alcohol um, addicts, came more to the forefront of my mind as I was running the project because things like I would go and see people in hospital and you know sometimes nobody would know where they were or they would tell me stories of being rough handled by the by the nursing staff and saying things like this is all your own you know it's your own fault this is self-inflicted and then I just kept hearing stories that clients were telling me about this and that and I suddenly realized how sidelined and and how they're seen as very different from us mm. and so because the Swan project is mainly run by volunteers um, when the volunteers started coming in, we started a training program, which the book is basically is based on, um, that was mainly about showing how actually they're the same as us, that there isn't a difference. So, um, yeah, I, sp I suppose that's what, yeah. Did Define. you want me to tell the story about Andrea? Yeah. Please go ahead. Yeah, because yeah, that, yeah. that's what inspired you to actually, I think you've been thinking yes. about writing the book and then that happened and you said, okay, I'm putting pen yeah. to paper. No. Do you know, I wasn't even thinking about writing a book. Oh. But Andrea was a nurse who'd sadly become addicted to heroin and she'd gone, she'd gone through a lot of treatment to get it down to methadone. And because she'd started using a bit of alcohol, the social services sent her to our agency. And... Um, she was such a lovely, lovely woman. And um, one day she came in late and she had blood coming out of her ear and out of her nose. And we were all rather shocked. And she said she'd been mugged. And that the police had rushed up because it was an area um, near where she, where she lived, where there were a lot of police around. And they'd come rushing up to, to check that she was okay. Until she said, oh, they've stolen my handbag and my methadone's in it. And then they just turned around and walked away. And I was so angry. In fact, I can still feel it sort of bubbling in me now. Oh. I was so angry that I thought I've got to write a book to explain to people that this isn't, you know, people aren't taking drugs. They're not drinking to get high. They're doing it to self-soothe. Mm. And, you know, then it's because it's a, an addictive substance. The more, you, um, the more you use it, the more you need. And so people get, get hooked and very soon they're out of control. So the book poured out of me in, I think it was 
about three weeks. And I was working full time. So it was mainly from, I would wake at two o'clock in the morning without fail. And I would just work till six. And then I'd get ready to go to work. And I actually remember even dozing off with a client. I'm a bit ashamed to say, but I just couldn't stop it coming. And then it took about another six weeks to edit it because it had just come out in the flood of, oh my God, I just can't bear it. And, and there is one line in the book where when I read the book, I think, oh yes, my anger just sort of slips out. <laughs> but it doesn't slip out very often, which I'm quite proud of. No, it is, of. It is very measured. How yeah, it's angry um, I was. So we'll stay with the societal for a moment, and then I'll ask you more about your approach to directly working uh, with people yeah. with addiction issues. Um, so when I read the book, I emailed you afterwards at some point and said, oh, you must have heard of Gabor Matei. Okay, is he um, Canadian? Yeah. I don't think you had at the point because yeah. it's just so similar. But this concept of the othering of the addict, mm-hmm. like we want to push them away and it's acceptable yeah. to degrade addicts. Uh, the yeah. other category of people this happens to is um, people with obesity. Yeah. A lot, right? Yeah. Um, or sometimes society does it to ethnic groups. Yes. The Jews have been the, the favored ones. Um, and, but with the, the addiction issues, it's almost as if we, we, we want to see that divide because we don't want to see that could be me, okay, that I could yeah. lose control yeah. in that way. Yeah. And um, I thought Gabba Matei's, in the, the insight that really struck me was how there's a kind of very unhealthy relationship set up inside between uh, people whose addiction issues go into substances and people whose addiction issues go into power. And the people who are become addicted to yeah. power often then yes. attempt to persecute yeah. the substance yeah. issues. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose any thoughts on that? Really, the um, the othering and societal um, implications of, and I suppose also um, your thoughts on the criminal justice system and whether that's a good model. To, to whether seeing it as a legal problem is a, is a good model to um, to deal with addiction. Well, there's a lot in there. Yeah, I, so, I sort of slipped a big one in at the end there, Ronnie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I might have to come back to We can that. come back to that actually in a bit, and maybe we could, because it, it does feel maybe it would be better at the end. Maybe I could ask you yeah, about yeah. your yeah. approach to working with, um, with uh, people with addiction issues. Um, so coming from your psychotherapeutic training, also this idea of the rehumanization of the person. And I know you've had certain spiritual influences along the way too. Not quite sure what they are, but we met at a spiritual group. Yeah. So I know they're, yeah. what's your yeah. to, to working? Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, I'd, I'd like to go back to your first question, just an element of your mm. first question first, which was, um, you know, people become addicted to power, people people become addicted to going to the gym, people become addicted to all sorts of things that are socially acceptable. And we don't see that as a problem and they're not sidelined. But then, you know, I think, I think alcohol particularly is sort of kicked out of the way and people poo-poo it because so many people fear I think underneath that they've got an alcohol problem, which I think there are so many people in our society that do have a problem with alcohol that aren't just admitting it. 
Mm, yeah. um, and so this this image of the guy who who sleeps on the park bench, you know, with a bottle of vodka under his arm in it, or wrapped in his in his uh, thick overcoat, sort of gets perpetuated. And actually, it's not like that at all. You know, we've had all sorts of um, professional. Bit, I mean, it, it touches all all walks of society, doesn't it? Um, so I suppose I wanted to say that. Sure, and I totally um, see that. I also see, um, you know, I've been lots of times in the pub with men who were quite drunk and yeah. evils of drugs, right? And these addicts who take drugs whilst clearly yeah. medicating their own pain of alcohol and not seeing any relationship whatsoever between what yeah. we're Yeah, yeah. And, and that's another good point that lots of people only take drugs after they've had quite a lot to drink and vice versa, actually. Some people, you know take drugs first to um, self-soothe, if you like, and then right. end, up, uh, end up drinking. So the two are sort of quite linked, aren't they, sometimes? Yeah. So um, I was wondering how spirituality... I mean, I've, I've been meditating for mm, probably 30 years now. So I do have a very sort of spiritual um, basis to my life and as you say we we met at a, at a spiritual thing um it has deeply affected my work but i'm not sure i can say how i mean because also I, i'm a poet now but um i've introduced a lot of poetry in in the into the swan project and we um so when we were running the day program which was a, a program where um addicts came for uh, let me see about I think it was about three hours a day we don't do it anymore and there was a slot for meditation a slot for body work and a slot for um for poetry we, we would always end with quite a um a spiritual poem if you like right just uh, as as a source of food and that's what the meditation was too and also the um the book. I tried to do a very holistic, um, holistic approach, and then we provided, you know, counselling on top of uh, on top of that. So um, yeah, because I don't, I don't think just one thing works. Right. Yeah. And I do think that um, people with with addictions have really lost their touch with nature and with spirituality, with all these things that really feed um you know a lot of us so it was it was an attempt actually we did we did even go for days to oxford for a whole whole day of meditation and um and we also when when we were funded we sent people on retreats for um silent retreats for a week and i remember one client coming home coming back and saying um he he was out walking on one of these walking meditations at the retreat and he looked up at the sky and he said he felt overwhelmed by love and he felt that that's what he was trying to get into him by using the alcohol and it really brought tears to my eyes and i you know it was like sort of yes 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 <laughs> okay so would it be a leap then to talk about addiction as a kind of misplaced spiritual yearning I think I think it's all to do with, as, as you know from my book, to do with not having had um, an attuned other, 
So, you know, mothers, I mean, a lot of people with addictions have had mothers who've been addicted or been depressed or been, um, you know, have had some sort of uh, disability, whether it be mental or, um, or physical. And so the attunement hasn't been there. And I do think, you know, that spirituality is something about, too, is about finding an attuned other. So I think it's all, it's all sort of linked. And I think nature, too, you know, I think for me, the trees are attuned others. You know, I can walk in the silence and feel really seen and heard by the trees, which might sound a bit odd, but... Not at all, but not on this podcast. No, God, no. God, <laughs> nature... It's, it's all a oneness, really, isn't it? It's just yes. we pretend that it's not. <laughs> so what kind of shifts do you see as being possible? What did you see in your work as being the changes that could happen for people struggling with these issues? Because I know people with addiction issues can often feel really imprisoned. Yeah. And they might go a period where they feel like they've got it under control and it flares up again. And yes. What did yes. you see as being possible? Oh, do you know, I, I could tell you so many wonderful stories of people who, you know, you watch people or I've watched people in the Swan Project first coming off, coming off the substance by whatever means. And then there's a sort of a honeymoon period where everybody feels, my God, this is great, you know, and fantastic. And, but then it, it all gets onto an even keel and people, some people will then lapse at that point. And sometimes they have to lapse several times before they, they get to the place where they realize that actually, no, they can't control it and they might have to give it up forever. But then there's, a, you know, people just find themselves and it's extraordinary. And at first it's like um, they don't know how to respond in the world. They don't know how to act in relationships because they've missed, they've often missed out huge chunks of their they're learning that we just sort of take for granted because a lot of people are addicted at the age of sort of 13, 14, which comes as quite a shock to people, but it, you know, it, mm. it's, it's true. Um, and their emotional development therefore has been sort of um, truncated, if you like, or, or it's been halted. And so the, the day program, was about sort of almost re-educating people about emotions about this i remember one chap coming back saying after we'd been out for a day saying when i got home i just had to drink coffee after coffee after coffee he said because i had this emotion that i couldn't couldn't cope with right. and then he said i looked it up online and it was happiness you know that makes you so it's sad doesn't yeah, it? It does, yeah. hadn't, he yeah. hadn't ever had that high of happiness without a, a drug and so it's about sort of um getting people used to living life again and then you see this absolute blossoming and people I, I think i find one of the most rewarding things because i was adopted is them getting back in touch with family members who'd mm. written them off mm. and That's healing those relationships say, being welcomed into a family again and then um, you find people getting jobs again and we had one person who'd, who'd had a diagnosis of mental health since she was three. And when she left the Swan Project, you know, she ditched the, ditched the um, label and she now works as a mental health worker. So just wonderful stories, really. And I wanted to ask you, you touched upon it there with family. I think there can be this like 
kind of swelling of positivity when someone with an addiction issue appears to have kicked it into touch. Okay. And then there's a relapse and there can be a lot of shame around the relapse. Okay. Yeah. And often people um, who have struggled with addiction for a long time will have frayed their relationships or maybe damaged their relationships with family. Um, Sometimes family feel they've been lied to or misled. Uh, Sometimes I just don't be honest because of the shame um, associated do you feel the therapy has to be systemic in some way to encompass healing those bonds? I, I know that that's the general trend and has been for quite a few years now, probably the last 10 years or so, but I actually don't, don't okay. feel that. Um, I think it could be, you know, it could be helpful. I'm not saying let's not, let's ditch it and not do it, but I've, I've found that a lot of, um, Certainly people at the Swan Project have managed to heal the relationships anyway, just to, from having therapy themselves and finding the right language to approach their, their relatives with the right attitude. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's my position on it, really. Okay. Just from the, from evident, you know, from the evidence that I've, I've seen. Okay, well, good. Um, could you explain the mechanics of the Swan Project? Because I think it's very interesting the way you set up this charity. It's to do with bringing in student therapists, isn't it? To do yeah. the, the so you've, you've essentially set up a charity where people can get low cost. Yes. In a way that's very sustainable. I think it's a very yeah. interesting structure and system. I don't know if you uh, mapped it from a, another existing charity, but if you, you no, 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 no. Very interesting. I mean, we were in a fortunate position um so what what happened was we set up the swan project and um the funding uh, bristol county council would only fund for 12 sessions of counseling which is um you know what is thought to be enough which is is totally ridiculous and um you know they say that organizations reflect their client client group and if you think about quick fixes it feels like you know, the government have, have adopted the quick fix notion. But anyway, we, we know, we knew that that wouldn't work because we'd worked in an alcohol and drug um, service before. So the only way of um, getting them uh, therapy for a longer time was really to use students. So we started with one student and just tried it out. And then we quickly went to four, then 12, and now we've got 60, 60. So they're not, all stu- they're not all students in training now. A lot of them have actually qualified. Uh, you know, we take in about 12 every year and train them. Um, but people love it so much because it's one of the few places that you can do long-term work. And each counsellor has four clients. So we're actually seeing over 200 addicts in Bristol and when I think sometimes the impact that's having on the um, environment because you know it's like dropping a pebble in a pond and that helps somebody else help somebody you know it helps their relationships generally so what we do is we do our supervision in groups of four so that it's cheaper for um, for the students 
So they pay our supervisors and then the clients pay um, a fee. It used to be from a pound, but now it's had to go up to five pounds. So from five pounds a week to 25 pounds a week. And they can have, in theory, they can have therapy for two years. But quite often, if they're still making progress, we had someone who stayed for, I think it was about eight years because he was homeless when he started and he was still making progress. So we just you know and he luckily he had the same therapist all the way through so as long as people are making progress and you know it's so needed at least two years because often it takes a whole year for the client to build up trust with the counsellor right. right which does sound a long time and I'm always saying to students you know don't worry if they're just talking about shopping lists or what they're doing in the week because there'll come a point when it'll change and it always does you know, suddenly they'll start talking about what's what's bothering them. And, and then, you know, the therapy sort of starts there. So it's almost like you have, have to have a pre-therapy period while people grow up trust. Because if you think about it, if you've had a parent that you couldn't trust and, you know, and then and then you've become addicted and really people can't trust you. So, and so you know, you can't trust people. So where's that trust you know where do you get your trust from and it, there isn't anywhere really so it's with the with the with the therapist no i think yeah. that's amazing it's just that 200 is not a small pebble ronnie that's quite a no. substantial yeah. and i just had no idea that it was um on that scale i thought it would you might have a dozen yeah no 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 yeah we've worked um, up gradually i mean we've been going for about 12 years now so yeah yeah sure. that's i mean that's and i just think it's um it's such an innovative model that could be repeated anywhere. It could be repeated in every city in the town. And I have written to MPs, even one, I can't remember who it was, that had an addiction, you know, and said, you know, all you need to do is follow this model. It's self-sustaining. We don't have any funding from anyone. But nobody gets back to me and nobody's interested, which is so sad because it could be doing all this work in every, you know, in every city. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's not MPs that will take it forward. Maybe it's independent people of a similar mind. Well, yes, I've had other people um, approach me, somebody who wanted to set it up. I can't remember where it was now. But sadly, it's, it's having the building. It's mm. having the building, you know. Mm. Basically, you need because we do we do pay rent, but you can't pay rent while you're building up yeah. the model. If you see what I mean, and we had a landlord who said, "Okay, just give me ten percent of what you of what you make." So you know, we were very lucky. But if government just um, subsidised that for a while, and also now we've got the model, you could start out quite big actually, so they wouldn't have to subsidise it yeah. for so long. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fascinating because it does seem to me there's a fundamental contradiction in the government providing mental health services in that all their incentives seem to be geared the wrong way. So you get this quick yeah. fix approach so often that people yeah. are always complaining about and everyone seems to know what the problem is. Yeah. But it's very hard to address. So I think it's, um, yeah. I think it's a wonderful model and I hope it yeah. does expand. Yes, and actually when we had the day programme, it was even better, but um, they, because there was no alcohol for funding, they had to fund us from something called the, um, I think it was the adult mental health budget or something. And one of our rivals, we actually made a mistake in that we bid for some work and one of our rival companies realised how much money we were getting from um, 
social services and made such a fuss that um, they had to reduce our funding. And in the in the end, it was costing us money to be funded. So we had to do a quick rethink of how we could fund it, which was why the client's fee went up a bit. And also the student's supervision fee had to go up. But uh, it's still, you know, it's still cheap for both parties. And um, so... Yeah, and I yeah. just say, look, just with regard to the impact, if you consider the direct impact on the city and wider area yeah. of just those the people you're directly contacting but it is that ripple effect then of how yeah. their families are different how their children will grow up exactly. differently and exactly. so on and so on and so on yeah, yeah. um all the way out you know so it's, yeah. it's rippling through space and time going into the future yeah it's, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 yes it's a shame that nobody else has um picked up on it we need some you know some funding body really to pick it up and and run with it. Okay, yeah. thank you very much for all that. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Is there anything else I'd like to talk about? Um, well, it's probably fine. It's probably fine. When we when we close down, I'll probably think, oh, damn, I should have done that. Yeah, I can call me back. I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you very much, everyone. It's a fascinating conversation. Uh, I'm really inspired by what you've set up, and thanks for coming on tell us about it yeah well maybe let's hope that the blog does something you know and uh yeah um, i'll link to um uh, certainly the the charity below where people can get details off um the swan project yeah yeah oh that would be great yeah okay well thank thanks you. very much richard thanks okay nice talking to you bye, bye.